Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021 in our home city of New York. But that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Michael Greenwald onto SALT Talks. Uh, if you've tuned into our SALT Bitcoin review, we had him on a few weeks ago. We look forward to going further into depth on different topics related to his expertise around geopolitics, the dollar, uh, as well as things that are going on in the art market uh, and just general global economics. But uh, Michael today is a director at Tiedemann Advisors, which is a multifamily office with over $22 billion in assets under management. He's also the director for digital asset education at Tiedemann, and digital assets have been a uh, you know, continued focus for him as he's grown out his role at Tiedemann um, and in general in the marketplace. Prior to joining Tiedemann, Michael served in the U.S. Treasury Department in two presidential administrations and under three Treasury secretaries. Most recently, uh, within Treasury. He was the first U.S. Treasury attache to Qatar and Kuwait, acting as the principal liaison to the banking sector in those countries. He previously held counterterrorism and intelligence roles, uh, requiring travel to 20 different countries as part of his uh, job there at Treasury. Uh, he served on the U.S. Treasury team that crafted sanctions against Russia, against ISIS, as well as against al-Qaeda. At Tiedemann, he also leads their business development efforts in the Middle East, so he's very much an expert on everything in the Gulf, which we'll get to as well during this conversation. Michael, as I mentioned, is an expert on the global economy, on digital currencies, and on the contemporary art market, which we'll also touch on later. He's a, de a deputy director at the Trilateral Commission and a fellow at the Atlantic Council and Harvard Kennedy School's Belf Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, uh, where he published over has published over 50 articles already, which I would highly recommend uh, you go over to the Belfer Center website and read a lot of his writings there. In 2020, he published a report in the Atlantic Council uh, called The Future of the U.S. Dollar, Weaponizing the U.S. Financial System. Uh, he's been featured in Barron's, The Financial Times, and on CNBC, and has lectured at Harvard, Stanford, and the Council on Foreign Relations. His philanthropic work has included serving as chair of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and Next Generation Board, and he holds a JD and a master's from Boston University and a bachelor's degree in history from George Washington University. Today, he lives in beautiful Palm Beach, Florida. Michael, welcome to SALT Talks. We're looking forward to diving into it with you. But before we get into a lot of these topics that you have such deep expertise on, we'd love to hear in your words more about your experience there at Treasury and just the arc of your you know, educational career and professional career that led you to Tiedemann. Sure, thank you, John. And thank you so much to SALT Talks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I started my career really interested in following the money after 9-11, understanding uh, how Al-Qaeda's fundraising efforts were working post 9-11, John, looking at the 9-11 Commission report and looking at why $500,000 was being moved into the United States through U.S. banks, what happened after 9-11, how our authorities got stronger, how we used the dollar not just with terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, but then to Iran, to Russia, 
and now uh, towards China, and now looking at where we are with digital currencies. So I had the awesome responsibility of working with an incredible team at Treasury. Uh, it was truly a, a collaborative team effort uh, across the community at Treasury and uh, in the intelligence community and in the USG. Uh, and this was a bipartisan issue. Is following the money, tracking terrorist financing. Uh, these were issues that we needed to tackle after 9-11. So I had the great pleasure of uh, working against uh, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates in Africa and really understanding how money, John, was being moved outside of formal banking channels. Um, I would call some of the illicit activity happening today almost like digital Hawala. Hawala is moving money you know, without notes uh, outside of formal banking channels. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to work uh, with Europe and on their counterterrorism efforts, whether it was Iran. And I think our, our, our sanctions against Russia were a watershed uh, moment for me. And I think for the Treasury, because we use the dollar uh, in, a, in a different scalpel-like way to use debt and equity restrictions. And then with ISIS, it went towards a different type of group where they were actually creating a state and using many uh, different funding streams. So that's kind of where my perspective has come from, uh, where we are today. So, Michael, in those roles at Treasury, you obviously witnessed firsthand the power of the dollar's global reserve currency status. So before we get into some of these more in-depth topics, for people that are less initiated on the value for the United States of having that status in terms of the dollar being the, the globe's reserve currency. Why is that so important and powerful for us as a country? Well, the dollar, you know, has many benefits and, you know, it provides the ability for the U.S. to support uh, a global order, uh, you know, around free markets. Uh, democracy maintains influence really over the integrity uh, of the global financial system, John. And that's beneficial to, I would say, you know, all participant countries. Um, it allows the United States to uh, stabilize global economic shocks. Some would argue that the Fed was the world's uh, you know, central bank uh, during COVID. Uh, it provides the world with access to mature capital markets. Uh, one thing that China has not been able to develop yet, and some would argue has a tough uh, time doing. Um, it continues to be the dollar, the world's uh, primary unit of measure, um, means of exchange, uh, and store of value. And the store of value is a very important point. It also affords, John, the world advantages in assessing uh, mature capital markets, uh, offering you know, low cost and stability. Uh, and then those markets you know, chose the dollar. Uh, they chose the dollar given that breadth and depth by the U.S. economy, uh, unparalleled liquidity, uh, and that's allowed for the dollar to play almost a 60% reserve role uh, around the world right now for central banks. And in terms of the implementation of sanctions, you know, why the fact that the dollar is so dominant around the world, how does that allow us to prosecute our agenda around the world you know, as a country? Well, I, countries want to be able to bank and to operate within uh, the U.S. jurisdiction in New York. And so uh, 
it's a privilege to be able to operate within the U.S. banking sector. And in order to meet that bar, um, you need to uh, have integrity in what you're doing. Uh, so if you're an illicit actor and you are interacting material support-wise uh, with someone on a U.S. sanctions list, um, you cannot operate in the United States. You're, if it touches the U.S. in any way, those assets will be frozen. Um, the best example is what led up to the Iran deal. Uh, if there were countries that were uh, any way economically operating or interacting with Iran or their jurisdiction, um, they could not operate within the United States. And so there was a clear line in the sand, John, of how the United States has weaponized the dollar. It's been very effective. Uh, as you know, I argue that we have to be careful how much we weaponize it. We have to be careful how much we put that line in the stand because as we are seeing with China and other adversaries, they're looking for ways to go around the dollar. So it's very powerful. We use it very wisely in our sanctions toolkit, but we can't overuse it. So you talked about the idea that these countries, especially China and Russia, for example, looking for ways to circumvent the U.S. dollar-denominated system. Uh, do you think the, the dollar status as the dominant global reserve currency is under threat? And what would the implications of that be for you know, national security, for, for economic uh, factors in the U.S.? You know, what would that mean? Well, I, I, I don't think it's under threat per se. I mean, we're still 59% central bank reserves. There's been a lot of hyperbole about the dollar is going to be overtaken by the Chinese by 2020. And you've seen economists uh, predict this incorrectly for years. So I think where the threat lies, John, is the United States being complacent. And when you're the leader, uh, it's very easy to rest on your laurels. And we've got a lot of great economic laurels, which I just laid out with the dollar, the dollar to rest on. So I think we need to continue to innovate. Uh, we need to watch what our adversaries are doing, but we have to be proactive. We can't just admire their rise. Um, so I think countries are actively looking for ways to work with other currencies and really follow a basket of currencies approach. But the real threat, in my opinion, is us not being able to innovate. And that's where it gets to uh, the future of currency, digital dollar, uh, and alike. Right. So let, let's pivot there into digital currencies. And we'll start with Bitcoin. So th there's two different topics here. There's central bank digital currencies, the idea that uh, if sovereign nations are going to digitize the dollar, the yuan, uh, other global currencies and the impact that could have. Uh, but there's also Bitcoin, which is the dominant, fully decentralized uh, digital currency. There was comments from Peter Thiel, the prominent uh, venture capitalist, who, who recently said that he thinks that we have to consider the possibility that Bitcoin is a Chinese financial weapon. Maybe he was hyperbolizing or there was some strategic uh, reason for him to make those comments. But uh, it's just an interesting thought that uh, Bitcoin could have a role in helping to uh, diminish the dollar status as the global reserve currency. What impact do you think the rise of digital currencies like Bitcoin will have on the dollar? Uh, and do you think the U.S. government is, is potentially going to regulate Bitcoin in a way uh, that protects the dollar? Well, I, I think that Bitcoin is creating uh, more choice and optionality uh, for the consumer and for 
for people. And so I, I think it's inevitable that, you know, Bitcoin and others are here to say, um, you know, some experts I speak with, John, you know, liken the technology of Bitcoin right now to like Napster when the Internet was starting. And there will be other versions of it and Ethereum and others will build on it and each will be a, a useful tool, whether Ethereum is better for the art world or others uh, we can right. get to. Um, I, I would say that it's good to have optionality. It's good to have choice. Um, but I don't think Bitcoin's going to um, hurt the dollar per se. I think the dollar is going to be strong in its own right. Uh, Bitcoin will come under more, I would say, regulatory guardrails by the U.S. government uh, in the months and years to come. Uh, I think that central bankers are, are trying to get their, their minds around what this means. Uh, a part of it, the market will dictate that. On Peter Thiel's comments, uh, listen, China does not view Bitcoin as a uh, legal tender. Um, they've taken some more hawkish actions in the last week. Uh, they're pushing their digital wand. That's their primary focus. But let's remember a large amount of uh, Bitcoin is being mined in China right now. So, you know, there is there is a narrative that's playing out there. Um, I wouldn't go as far as what Peter is saying, but what I would say is that it's creating optionality for people to operate outside of the United States dollar. And so that is one of China's goals. So in essence, Bitcoin is playing into China's long-term narrative and strategy uh, for the U.S. to not be as economic influential uh, as they currently are right now. And one thing to note would be central bank reserves, right? So we're at 59% dollar central bank reserves right now, the lowest level in 25 years. Um, that's going to be a number to watch. Uh, what would be the reaction, John, if we saw a headline tomorrow that said that dollar reserves drop below 50%? How would the United States react? So right. those are some of the things that I think are important guideposts to keep in mind. Yeah, the, the Napster analogy is one I haven't heard, but one that's definitely interesting. And you referenced those moves that China recently made. They've banned Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies in various forms in 2013, in 2017. But that most recent crackdown, we actually wrote about it in our uh, Salt Bitcoin newsletter that we send out every Wednesday morning. Uh, so I, I steeped myself in that over the last week. And it definitely takes things to the next level in terms of how they're regulating uh, cryptocurrencies out of their economy, including crackdowns on Bitcoin mining. So that aspect aspect of it is also slowly going away. Uh, yeah, that was a great that was a great write up. And I would just argue some argue that that's because uh, the the Chinese currency and its digital yuan is not taking off as fast as they would like. Their scaling up ability is not taking off, and so. Uh, China's reaction, some would argue, is insecurity and right. uh, controlling that, you know, in the last couple of years, because China's under pressure, they've restricted gold from leaving China. And obviously, it's a safe haven asset. Everybody wants to, to, to point to gold. It's never a good sign in a country's economic narrative when you're restricting gold from leaving right. the country. Yeah, any country with capital controls in place would seem not to me to be a natural 
you know, sponsor of the rise of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin because it, it provides an avenue for people to skirt those capital controls. So that narrative around uh, that Teal that basically put forward around China using Bitcoin as a, as a financial weapon never really resonated completely with me. Uh, but it's just an interesting topic because of Bitcoin's role in in potentially uh, weakening the dollar's global reserve currency status. But you know, so we talked about this a, a month or so ago when we had you on the Salt Bitcoin Review, but I want to talk about it again for this audience. Michael Morell, uh, basically a group of people in the digital asset space, got the former CIA director, Michael Morell, uh, to author a report about illicit activities uh, you know, related to cryptocurrencies. The colonial pipeline hack happened after that. So we saw a use case example of an organization of hackers using digital currencies and Bitcoin in that case to collect ransoms after they uh, hacked the colonial pipeline, which obviously disrupted uh, oil uh, flow around the country, including in the Southeast where my parents live, they couldn't get gas for a few days. Um, but how much in your view is Bitcoin and other digital currencies or cryptocurrencies, decentralized cryptocurrencies used in illicit finance? And how much should we be worried about that? Let's say uh, you're a Bitcoin investor. How much should you be worried about a crackdown on Bitcoin because of its role in illicit finance? Well, I, I think it, it's definitely an intelligence gap, uh, as you know, Michael Morell points out. There's not enough data yet. I wish, I wish the report had been done independently. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Michael Morell, and he's uh, very wise, and he's been through the trenches. Um, so it's important to note that's an important report, um, but it's an intelligence gap. I think I, I used to deal with ransom payments when I was. You know, we, when we were countering Al Qaeda in Africa, the groups there raised a lot of their money, John, through ransom payments, and those were usually paid um, in euros, right, uh, or dollars. Um, now you're seeing a lot of these ransoms being paid um, in um, you know digital currencies, Bitcoin, and others. Um, the the data that we have on this, I think it's still very low, and I right. think that. The, the intelligence community, my sense, uh, is likely putting more resources to try to understand this data stream. As, a, as an investor, I think you criminals and terrorists are going to use every aspect of formal and illicit banking channels and non-banking channels to achieve their objective. So I think they have to expect that more of this will continue and that more of this will operate, which is why I think it'd be wise for the Fed and the government to have targeted regulation, not too much, not an overhand approach, but at least some guardrails so that people can understand how to operate. Um, but, you know, listen, blockchain technology, uh, it can be a great tool for preventing criminals from actually using it. So I, I think there's both sides, but overall, not enough information, too many gaps. Anyone that says all of this is illicit, all of this is not, there's not enough information yet to really make the determination. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the first step is just uh, digitizing more, more things, and, and we can pivot to talking about central bank digital currencies, but obviously uh, U.S. dollar paper has been used uh, around the world, maybe for more illicit activity than any other currency in history. You talk about, you know, ranging from drug cartels to terrorist financing, you know, physical bills have certainly been used uh, throughout history in that regard. But 
Central bank digital currencies, I know it's an area that you studied very closely. You wrote, I think, uh, what was one of the most thoughtful and seminal papers on uh, the digital yuan as part of uh, the Belfer Center research that you do. So talk to us about that digital yuan project. Why is China moving forward more aggressively than anyone else with that digital yuan uh, project? Do you think it will be successful? And how are they going about it? So China, you know, wants control at every level, and that speaks to their long-term strategy. So the ability for China through its central bank to control the consumer, get streams of information about the consumer at every level, all payments, that is, uh, you know, exactly what China uh, lives and breathes, right? So I, I think ultimately they're looking to scale up and leading up to the, the their Olympics. And they've had lotteries, uh, over 50 million people have been using the digital one. Um, the big question is, is whether it can be used for joint trade and whether it actually gets operationalized, John, in the Belt and Road Initiative, which is done in dollars right now, whether they're actually able to um, have a deepened relationship with SWIFT, how financial messages are being moved. Um, and how it plays into OPEC. But what they're doing in China right now is that they are making this part of the culture, part of the economic fabric. And so just like with Alipay and others, and everything will be done through digital one. And it will be in the interest of China and the consumer to be using it. They're looking to set a precedent for others. So Russia is creating its own. China and Iran have an economic agreement in the last month. Iran will likely try to follow some best practices of what's worked with China to operate outside of the U.S. dollar. So what I see here is a web of countries looking for control, using their central banks uh, to do that. Now, what's dangerous is for that narrative to be played into what the United States may do. And the Fed this summer is coming out with a paper on uh, the possibility of a digital dollar, a central bank uh, digital currency. And the United States digital dollar will be the opposite of what China is looking to do. The United States is going to have to make sure that there's an act of Congress, that right. civil liberties are built in, that there's oversight, uh, financial inclusion, all of these benefits. Um, Lael Brainerd, Fed governor, extremely influential voice, uh, laid out yesterday uh, really four key areas uh, for you know digital private money is what she called it, and you know she laid out you know migration to digital payments, uh, plans for the use of foreign central bank digital currencies and cross border payments. Uh, you know there's a concern here in the United States, John, about financial inclusion. Those are the sharpened focuses of it. What I see, I see a couple main benefits uh, for a digital dollar, not just for the United States, uh, but really globally. So that would be, you know, providing the ability uh, through its primacy, regulatory capacity uh, to really have a digital dollar platform. And that will allow the United States to reassert uh, Western standards, uh, values such as rule of law, reasonable privacy, complete opposite than China in Russia and Iran, um, greater efficiencies from faster transactions, 
reduced costs, uh, faster cross-border transactions, which we saw, you know, in the COVID payments uh, during uh, the congressional acts, uh, checks could be mailed uh, much quicker through digital dollar. Um, greater transparency, accountability, and ultimately, I would say a narrative for the digital dollar to facilitate greater economic growth. And those would be a couple of the things that I think would be outlined in a narrative as central bank digital currencies grow um, and the Europeans and others grab onto it. Well, it'll be fascinating to read that white paper when it comes out this summer, uh, because we've talked to various people on, on this SALT Talk series, including Marty Chavez, who was a senior executive at Goldman Sachs, focusing on technology and money in that intersection uh, at Goldman. He had some fascinating real-life use cases for uh, central bank digital currency. And it'll be very interesting to see whether uh, the U.S. government starts to implement a strategy in that regard. But you are an expert on the art market as well. Um, you've written a lot of very interesting papers. I think you're, you're a leading expert on this topic. You've talked about how the art market is helping to legitimize digital currencies, you know, moving it away from this stigma around illicit finance and, and the things that people might associate digital currencies with, uh, you know, who, who are less educated on them. Uh, and, and digital currencies are being used very heavily in the art market. You've also seen the uh, explosion of the NFT market. Could you explain how uh, you think the art market is legitimizing digital currencies? Sure. So the art market's sort of a, a fascinating case study as we're develop, you know, talking about all these topics. If you look at moments in time of the economy and where the art market has been, it's been a very important, uh, you know, comparison. So I view the, the the big three, right? Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips, the three major global auction houses. John, I view them like the central banks of the art world, and what they are doing with minting their own tokens. Uh, having sales in NFTs, allowing to accept uh, different currencies, uh, favoring Ethereum, I would say, in this regard, uh, and in, I would say, gateways like uh, Marker um, or Maker, um, they are allowing the market to play out faster than our own Federal Reserve, our own banks uh, here uh, and elsewhere. So digital artists and NFT, this has been around since the 50s. The difference now is there is a market for it, just like there was a market for the dollar. And I would say the reason why people have, I think, gravitated towards uh, Bitcoin and others is they were looking for optionality. They felt constrained by oversight. Artists feel the same way. They feel constrained by the canvas, John, and they want to operate outside of it. They want to have more rights, more independence. They don't want to have seven different, different intermediaries control whether they're going to end up at Art Basel or not. Right. right? They want to have their own identity. So I think all of these themes, very interesting, play into the art market's growth as they do in the intersection of the future of money as well. Yeah, and one of the great things about NFTs and tokens in the art world is that it gives that uh, that artist control over any subsequent sales, or at least they get proceeds from subsequent sales of their art um, that allows them to share in the spoils, uh, that, that the speculation within art uh, that, that comes along with that. 
So as it relates to Bitcoin, we've talked about central bank digital currencies. We've talked about Bitcoin. Do you think that those are in competition with each other? You know, we have some people that come to us, uh, you know, we at SkyBridge are investors in Bitcoin who say, well, I'm just going to wait for the digital dollar to come. That's going to replace Bitcoin. Do you think those, again, are in competition with each other or what's the impact of central bank digital currencies on fiat currencies like the dollar? I don't think they're in competition. I think they will live alongside each other, John, uh, in a virtual future, virtual wallet. And I think that each of these currencies, whether they're Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, Coronado, digital dollar, digital one, you know, digital yen, they will all have different purposes. And the, the future consumer, you know, our kids and our grandkids, they will have a virtual wallet and they will all live alongside each other. Uh, we'll be living in a basket of currencies uh, mindset in a world where people want choices. So I, I think it's a false narrative to say that one's a threat to each other. Uh, the market will choose uh, which one is more favorable depending on the purpose. I don't see Bitcoin uh, really uh, hurting the dollar too much or uh, cutting it down. I think the market will choose a reasonable uh, outcome as long as there is more guardrails, more regulatory guidance. Um, so that's kind of see how uh, I see it playing out. Right. I want to shift gears to a, a broader conversation around uh, global economics and global geopolitics. So you also wrote an interesting piece. You've written a couple of pieces actually uh, at, at the Belfer Center around vaccine diplomacy, around public health sanctions. A lot has been made in the last couple of weeks about a new report in the Wall Street Journal about the origins of COVID-19, the virus that it, that it emanate out of a lab in Wuhan. You know, how should the Chinese be held accountable if that's the case? And they withheld information early on in the pandemic that led obviously to economic and, and human tragedy uh, around the world. Uh, do you think that the U.S. should be actively trying to hold China accountable if they do find enough evidence to prove um, that the virus emanated out of the lab? Obviously, the Biden administration has taken a more cautious approach. Some in the in the former Trump administration have demanded a little bit more accountability. But how should we look at sort of managing public health outcomes uh, using things like sanctions? Well, I, I think we would have to do it very carefully, very targeted. Um, but accountability, especially uh, post-pandemic, is critical to, to prevent future ones. So uh, I, I think we need to understand the origins. We need to understand what went wrong so that we can prevent it, just like how we can prevent another 9-11, to uh, understand the origins and throughout. And from that, from 9-11 came a series of actions, and we use sanctions very strategically. Um, I think... Uh, public health best practices uh, is a form of our national security. Uh, right. And we have to treat public health uh, more, I would say, in that realm. But at the same time, there's uh, a, 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 I would say, a, there's a human rights aspect to it. Uh, there are certain communities that don't have access, John, to the kind of care we have in the United States. So it's gonna be a delicate balance if we were to apply those sanctions, uh, you know, how and where and what would be the impact. So we'd have to weigh the cost benefit. But I, I, I believe uh, accountability through targeted sanctions uh, is incredibly important because if we don't do that, uh, it will happen again. It will be repeatable. 
uh, and there needs to be consequences. So the policy response to COVID-19, there was a lot of turning inward that happened in various countries and regions around the world for, for often very practical reasons around, you know, containing the virus and sort of having determinism of your own outcome as it relates to COVID. Uh, but what impact long-term do you think the broader policy response to COVID-19 will have on global commerce, global trade? Well, I think long-term it's, that's been one of the drivers, I think, for digital currencies. I think uh, digital currencies have thrived during this time. And so I think that's going to be looked at as a major uh, watershed moment uh, in the past year and a half. Um, prior to COVID, central banks played a huge role in the financial crisis, um, and they played a very important role here. But this allowed for there to be a turning of the tide. And I, I think that that's going to be one of the hallmarks of the future. Um, in addition, I think supply chains. It was finally an event that put um, a true awareness on what these major companies uh, have to choose before them. Um, in addition, it's, it's, it's allowed countries like Australia and New Zealand to operate differently uh, with China. Um, and so I think there's good, I would say the biggest takeaways I have going forward uh, will be what it's done for the digital currency space. Uh, and what it will do for the future of supply chains and the choice of cost uh, companies will have to make. So um, John Cena was was recently promoting a movie in China, Fast and Furious 9. We're focusing on China for, for the last half of this conversation, but he, he basically slipped up and recognized Taiwan as a country in some of the promotion he was doing. He was forced, I'm sure, by the uh, the movie heads uh, to go out on Sina Weibo, the social media app in China, and apologize for that mistake of calling Taiwan a country. I think you've seen China take a, a an even more sort of pugnacious tone as it relates to Taiwan, maybe sensing uh, an opening to do so with the, the uh, onboarding of a new administration in, in the U.S. Do you think that China will continue to take a strong posture as it relates to issues like Taiwan? Obviously, you have a huge semiconductor market uh, in Taiwan, and you talk about supply chains, and and for U.S. national security reasons, the prioritization of building out our own uh, microchip infrastructure here. But do you think China will continue to take sort of a standoffish approach with Hong Kong, Taiwan, and and what's the U.S. policy response need to be to that? Yeah, that lies in a in a policy of insecurity for China, and uh, their reaction uh, where uh, you know someone would have to apologize. It, it, it's akin to the, I think it's the Seth Rogen, North Korea movie, right? Right. Uh, and the outcome after that. Uh, so it, that tells you, it tells you part of China's really hand in this, that uh, and the same thing happened with the NBA uh, with China uh, right. in the past you know, year plus. So it, that shows you that they do hold uh, quite a few economic uh, supply chain cards right now. I would hope that we would move towards a better outcome where um, we wouldn't have to apologize. Um, and we would be able to have more, um, I would say, economic relevance uh, and ability where we wouldn't have to do that. But Taiwan's a very sensitive topic for, for China. I, I think it's going, that's going to be the major, uh, 
you know, tests and tasks uh, for this administration uh, going forward is, is how it dances around this issue, how it works with China on climate, doesn't give away too many concessions, but at the same time uh, moves the ball forward, isn't just admiring the problem. I mean, administrations, Democrat, Republican, John, they've just been admiring uh, a growing China for years um, without much real movement. Uh, So um, that will be uh, a continued point of uh, growing insecurity for China. Right. And one of your great areas of expertise is the Gulf. As we mentioned in the open and you talked about at the beginning was that you were the uh, attache, the commercial attache to Qatar and Kuwait. You're very steeped in the Gulf. Uh, you act as a business development lead at Tiedemann in the Gulf as well. Uh, with China representing a much greater share of oil demand now that the U.S. has greater energy independence, obviously there's been closer ties that have been developed between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, other countries in the Gulf, and China. Uh, and, and the Biden administration in general is taking a more cautious approach related to our alliances in the Gulf. Do you expect to see an eastward shift in, in geopolitical realignment uh, between the Gulf and China uh, in, you know, in replacement of those strong ties that the Gulf has always had with the United States? I don't think it's going to be a replacement, but I think that tide has already been turning. And China's been, I remember being there, John, you know, from 2015 and 2017. And, uh, you know, I was watching closely, you know, China's movements uh, in the Gulf, and it's been in closing, uh, you know, increasingly close. Uh, I've seen, you know, most central bank governors in the region all visit China, right? And you've seen delegations grow back and forth. Uh, so I think that will continue how the United States uh, stays relevant, protects it, but the Gulf, the Gulf is the Gulf countries are intermediaries within intermediaries. They need many alt, they need uh, you know many economic partners. So they're going to play the United States off China, off each other constantly. The real thing to watch is Israel's relationship with China and how Israel uses their tech and their growing nature of their economy and what that looks like between the U.S. and China, uh, that will be fascinating. I I expect um, greater Gulf, um, I would say, funding to go to China. And I think the type of deal that China did with Iran, they're likely looking to do the same thing with certain Gulf countries uh, to gain more influence. The big thing to watch is if there is a major thawing between Saudi and Iran, where is China's role in that thaw? And that will be a very interesting intersection to watch because uh, China wants to be at that table. So the last piece on China that's that's very recent in the last 48 hours or so, the EU parliament basically froze any investment into China as part of a trade deal that was struck, uh, I believe, last year after about seven years of negotiations. It was a big deal when it happened. Um, and obviously, Europe sort of stagnating in its growth has turned eastward as well, uh, looking to stimulate growth through, through partnership with China. But also, uh, the Europeans have, have introduced sanctions on China for uh, treatment of the Uyghurs and, and that entire controversy. Uh, so what do you expect the relationship between Europe and China to be? Do you think the Biden administration is going to work harder to you know, create a unified front in terms of confronting China on human, right, human rights issues and intellectual property theft and the core issues that 
that we're trying to work with China on? Or what do you expect that relationship between Europe and China to look like over the coming years? So Europe and China, it's going to be a public frosty relationship. Uh, privately, China needs Europe and Europe needs China. So right. I think the, the public posture will be very different than what's happening uh, behind the scenes. I expect the Europeans to find workarounds uh, to work with China. It is a good opening for uh, the Biden administration. I was uh, a bit, um, I would say, disturbed you know, prior to the administration coming in to office that China would have this deal with the EU. So I think this is a new opening. Uh, you know, the president's sending some of his top uh, ambassadors uh, to Europe shortly who are, have been close aides to him. So I expect them uh, to double down on that relationship and to really make it worth the EU's uh, economic strategy to pivot more to the U.S. Uh, than China. Um, but, you know, I, I think what the EU has done to China um, I, I'm happy to see that it's it's long overdue. Uh, but again, there's that public uh, persona, John, and what they actually do behind the scenes. Right. I, I think that was the biggest criticism of the Trump administration, not that they uh, you know, were, were taking pains to hold China accountable for a variety of different things, but that they didn't uh, create that unified front in order to have more leverage uh, in our various negotiations with China. So yeah, uh, like multilateralism said, is going to be... Uh, incredibly important. And I think in order for this administration to really, uh, I would say, achieve its its key objectives, uh, they're going to need to work targeted with China, and they're going to have to work much more multilateral with Europe and their allies and uh, you know, reimagine what the G7 looks like. And I expect them to do that. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure to have you here on Salt Talks. Uh, thank you for joining us and also joining us a few weeks ago for that Salt Bitcoin review. You're our go-to expert uh, on any topic related to the dollar, geopolitics, and global economics, and, and the art market as well. Uh, so I, I couldn't highly recommend enough that you go, if you're interested in what we talked about here today, to the Belfer Center website, uh, where Michael writes about a lot of these topics in even more depth. And I'm sure he'll be closely covering the central bank digital currency and digital dollar initiatives here in the U.S., especially as that white paper comes out this summer. That'll be something maybe we'll revisit another conversation with you, Michael, but thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, John. Great to be on Salt Talks again. And thank you everybody for tuning in to today's episode of Salt Talks with Michael Greenwald of Tiedemann Advisors. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can access them on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks and on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on Twitter is where we're most active on social media at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. We've really enjoyed educating an even larger group of people than we do at our conferences through our digital media initiatives uh, during and after COVID. Uh, so, uh, so please uh, spread the word about this conversation and other uh, topics that we discuss here on Salt Talks. On behalf of the entire uh, team behind the scenes here at Salt Talks, I'm John Darcy signing off uh, from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.